You're listening to Something Real, connecting the reality of God to the realities of life. On this week's Something to Talk About, we are in Acts chapter 2 and focusing on the birth of the church. So hope you guys enjoy this episode. Good morning. Good morning. Sorry, you're drinking some water. <laughs> I, I said I was ready <laughs> and I apparently lied. I lied. So. You lied. How are you? Um, now that we're actually podcasting, I'm just just nah, dandy. Because we've been here an hour and I haven't I yet asked you how you are. Concerned for a moment, but I'm always concerned. But that since was, that we was are, my nickname in high school, <laughs> always concerned, Cozio. Since we are the home of professional podcasting, we um, would you expect anything less? Yes. So we are uh, in Acts chapter two, or we were. Um, we are in. Still in Acts chapter 2, because we're talking about yesterday's right. sermon. So yeah, yeah, Two days ago. Right. Days, yes, days are days. a blur. Days, weeks, sometimes years. <laughs> That's very true. Um, I want to... Well, I'll, I'll let you... Uh, Dazed and confused. Uh, you know what? I've never seen that movie. I haven't either. Um, <laughs> of really. all the pop culture references that not, we go through, Not really my style, it. but be, uh, being dazed and confused, not drug-addled. Very but, familiar yeah. with that. Um, I have something I, in particular I want to talk about, uh, which is convenient because this is called something to talk about. Let's talk about but it. But I first think that we should give a, a summary of uh, of this chapter that we talked about on Sunday. Okay, so is what you want to talk about related to the sermon so. on Sunday, or is, okay? <laughs> we will. I just just trying to no, figure out how to place it in cheese. here. So. <laughs> I do like cheese. Cheese, it's good. Home improvement reference. But. <laughs> All right. So anyway, we we're talking about Acts chapter two and the birth of the church. Uh, a lot of times we focus in just on the the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. I keep looking at the computer screen instead of at the the phone, and I'm making the desk wobble. Uh, but as we're looking at this, a lot of times we get caught up in in just seeing the Holy Spirit coming and the 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 sound and fury and the the miraculous speaking in unknown languages and so on. Mm-hmm. But it's really much more than that. And, and when we see, this is the case in the Gospels as well, and Jesus kind of tries to redirect people on this. When we just focus in on the act, on the miracle, then we miss out on the message, and there's more to it. The miracles are there to affirm the message, to to uh, sort of be an ID card for Christ in the Gospels, and now for the, for the early church as, as it's beginning. <clears throat> so as we see... The story unfold. There's really three scenes that take place in this one uh, particular story that that happens in Acts two. The disciples are gathered. They're waiting for the coming Holy Spirit as Jesus had instructed them. They gather together in Jerusalem. There's about 120 of them there, as we had read previously. The Holy Spirit does come on them, just as Jesus had said. Um, it, it's an amazing event. But the event then leads to more. So then scene two, the, the folks outside apparently hear this loud noise that um, that's described as sounding like a roaring wind. And they come and all of a sudden all these Galilean disciples are, are speaking in foreign languages that they would have no reason to know. And right. wait, wait a minute, why are we hearing each of us from all these different countries? Why are we hearing them? speaking in our own language. <clears throat> and folks are coming because they're gathered in Jerusalem. The scattered Jews are coming on this pilgrimage to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, the Pentecost. So they're all there at the capital city. 
uh, at the city of David. Now, Peter addresses them because some of them are like, wow, what's going on? And some of them are like, Psh, these guys are drunk. And Peter stands up and says, no, you know, think about what you're saying here. It's only nine in the morning. You're not drunk. Also, you usually and, and, use, lose your faculties when you're right. drunk. Right. People <laughs> don't gain smarter. education. Right, right. You might think you're smarter right. when you're drunk, right. apparently. But uh, when when that happens, you, you, that's when gibberish right. comes. So that's not what they're doing. They're not speaking gibberish. There's no babbling. There's no ecstatic utterances. They're speaking. They're conversing in languages they did not prior, they did not previously know. You also used my Rosetta Stone joke on Sunday. Which I, I did, yeah. That. I thought about that afterwards. I'm like, hey, that was Stacy. Uh, <clears throat> so anyway, I can't afford Rosetta Stone. <laughs> Same. The... Uh, the scene then changes after after Peter explains this to them and he lays out the gospel for them and he calls them to repentance. Um, and, and at that time, some of them believed, it said, and some of them did not. But the some of them that believed were 3,000 being added to, the, to their number that day. So then we kind of shift scenes to the picture of what does that look like? Okay, so the Holy Spirit comes and the church is born. The gospel is proclaimed, people respond. Now what? What does the church look like? And, and at the end of chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, I think it is, um, we have this description of what's taking place. They're devoted to the, to the uh, apostles' teaching. They're devoted to doctrine. They're focused on fellowship as they're gathering together and breaking bread. They're committed to communion as they're, um, as, as they're practicing regularly the remembrance celebration, as we call it in real life, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. <clears throat> They're celebrating what Christ did for them to purchase their freedom. They're, they're constantly in prayer. They're passionate about prayer. And so then we see the, the effect of that is everybody's in awe. They're, mm -hmm. they're, they're aware of and moved by what God is doing. On Sunday I said that they were wowed with wonder. Um, they're, they're overflowing with compassion and generosity. They're given to giving. They're uh, gathering frequently, so frequently that they're, they're actually gathering in the temple in some, some form of a formal-ish, formalized service. Clearly not developed because this is all just happening right now. So there's, there's this organic desire to let's get together and pray and worship and study the word. Let's go do this at the temple courts. We're going to get together for this purpose as a body. And so they're, they're reinforced by this regularity. They're, they're strengthened by their frequency of gathering. And not only that, but they're meeting together. Aside from that daily gathering, they're meeting together in their homes. They're doing life together. They're breaking bread together. Uh, in all likelihood, they're, they're uh, celebrating communion in their homes as well. But they are, they are, in one form or another, demonstrating hospitality as the intimacy of their connection to Christ creates an intimacy of connection in Christ for them all together. And they're welcoming other believers into their homes. Uh, so there, there's this constant movement. Everything that we see through the book of Acts is, is the church together. We're not seeing this you know, rogue, lone ranger Christianity that we seem to like a lot of times in, in you know, contemporary America. We, we have this thought that, you know, I... Well, I love Jesus, but I, I just don't like the church. I don't need to be a part of the church. Well, how do you how do you love the head and hate the body? That's not how that works. So if if you you know if you love me and hate my children, then you don't really love me. There's a problem here between us. 
So to say that, you know, I love Jesus, nah, not so much the church. We really don't love Jesus. We, he said, if, if you love me, you're going to show that. People will know your disciple, you're my disciples, by your love for one another. Now, I can understand that in a, in a way, considering where the church has gone in, in large... It, well, <laughs> yes and no. The, what we see as the church isn't really the church. That's what I mean. You know, yeah. Much like what Paul would say to about Israel. Not all who are Israel, not all who wear the name, not all who have uh, you know Jewish descent, or, they're not all of Abraham. It, it, it's right. What matters is are so, you Abraham's seed by faith? Are you, are you in that, uh, are you children of the promise, so to speak? So I think it's important <clears throat> to recognize the reality of what the church really is and not the other junk that might be surrounding it. Well, and that's part of it. Uh, um, and I think probably just about every preacher that I can think of that has talked about this. I, I recently heard a sermon from Alistair Begg. As you know, I've been listening to a lot of Begg lately. Um, yes, I listen to a lot of sermons. I, I think writers read, preachers listen. That's my take on stuff. And so anyway, as, I, as I'm here in Begg, he really brought out, I think, a very salient point that until you actually are loving a person face-to-face, you don't really understand love. Mm-hmm. It's easy for us to love the church in theory, it, you know, right. in, in concept. Oh, yeah, I love the church if I don't have to love individuals. <laughs> individuals are hard. The, on, the idea, the concept of Jesus, oh, that's great because I can shape that. But when I'm actually loving the people who wear his name, the people who are created in God's image, that's harder because we're sinful and and we disappoint each other. We let each other down. We, you know, we're going to blow it. So it's a lot harder to actually love in reality with skin on it than it is to say, "Oh, I love everyone." You know, right. that's just that's how it works. Um, so the the intentional design of the church by God gives us constant opportunity to demonstrate the love of Christ to. I mean, let's be honest, unlovable people. We're, mm-hmm. we're, none of us are that easy to love. Mm-hmm. You know, I can, <laughs> I think that my wife uh, would probably never say it because she's very sweet. But in reality, I'm not easy to be married to. I'm, you know, I, I'm a pain in the neck. But she gets to demonstrate her love for Christ by loving a, a difficult human individual, a difficult person. Um, and we're all difficult people in, in a variety of different ways. So without the church, we really don't display the love of Christ. We can't carry out our job as discipleship as disciples if we're not doing that in a togetherness concept, if we're not doing life together. And that's one of the things that we see starting here in the birth of the church in, in Acts chapter 2. And, and we see it continuing throughout the entire book. There's a theme of unity and togetherness. And there's there's division, there's struggles. As they grow, they're going to have more and more problems. But this um, the same thing uh, happens here where, uh, where they get to demonstrate, they get to practice heaven on earth by loving one another as a, as a family together. The thing I wanted to touch on here is you, you mentioned that you know it's easy to focus on the the wow moment here, yeah. and that's really not the the big deal. But 
It seems like a big deal to us. It's not right. That's what I was going to say. That is, but, I think, what we're drawn to, yeah. and I think as a result of that, it's what a lot of people want slash expect. Yes. Uh, when it comes to, I'm not really saved if I didn't have this big rush, this emotional, overwhelming mountaintop experience. Right. It didn't so I'm going to play a, a, the role of the practical person here, and just flat out ask, if you know, <laughs> um, what. What, I guess, are some practical, I hate to use the word signs, but indications that the Holy Spirit has come upon you? That is a really excellent and cogent question. If you don't have this big wow moment, you know what I mean? Let me read to you a passage that I think clarifies that for us pretty well. This is... In Galatians chapter 5, I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation because I left my, that's what's my, in front of my regular Bible upstairs. Would you so like a different translation? Re- no, I have no, on my phone. No, I actually, <laughs> I love the, the New Living Translation, especially because I'm used to the NIV and the ESV. So when I read it in the New Living, sometimes it'll give a, a fresh take to it. <clears throat> but here's the natural way, the, the normal way for us, uh, we see in... Galatians 5.19, when you follow the desires of your flesh, of your sinful nature, as it translates it here, but the the natural uh, urges of your humanity, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of of anger, uh, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, this is Paul speaking to the church, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. So how do we know we have the Holy Spirit? We're seeing an increase in the Spirit-given fruit. What what does the Holy Spirit do in a life? It's interesting, Paul does not at any point say, he does talk about spiritual gifts in in, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, he he speaks of it a little bit also in Romans 12, that the gifts of the Spirit uh, are a variety of different things for the use in the body, for the building up of the body. He speaks in Ephesians 4 of gifts of the Spirit being apostles, teachers, evangelists, pastors, that these roles, these people are gifts of the Spirit. <clears throat> so the, those things are there, but he never talks about this is how you know you have the Spirit. This right. is the sign of the Holy Spirit in you. And unless I'm missing a, a place, this is the only place that, that we really see that, where he says, okay, here right, right now, this is what the Holy Spirit does. This is how you know you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. So there's an action, there's an action that we take to allow the fruit of the Spirit to grow in us. If we have not, if we if we claim Christ and we have received the gospel message, we believe that Jesus died for our sins, then we may be saved, but we're not growing. We're, we're, we're still clinging. We're trying to sail a boat while we're still tied to the dock. That's not going to work. 
But in Christ Jesus, we have nailed the passions and desires of our sinful natures of our flesh to his cross and crucified them there. Verse 25 says, since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. So the the sign of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is that First off, we're seeing these things displayed in increasing measure, not perfectly, but increasingly. So the love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all of that stuff is what the Holy Spirit is producing in the believer. When, when we are stunting that and we're controlling that, what ends up happening in the life of the believer is I get convicted about it. Mm-hmm. So when I don't experience peace, in the Holy Spirit, it's because I'm I'm, I'm squelching it. I'm, I'm quenching the Spirit. I'm, I'm you know I've nailed this stuff to the cross, but I'm still holding on to my flesh. So, but the fact that you're disturbed <clears throat> by that or, or you know torn up about that, yeah, that is because otherwise you wouldn't care. Well, we talked about that uh, two weeks ago, I think, in in looking at the response of the believers to Christ, mm-hmm. to Christ's command. They're still waiting for the Holy Spirit. They haven't gotten the Holy Spirit yet. Uh, but they they know Jesus is the way. So their choice is, I'm going to respond to this by obeying, because I can obey by waiting as he told me to wait. He's going to bring the power. In the meantime, let's get ready, right? So they're eager to do, they, they weren't doing what, what they were called to do yet, but they were eager to do that. In the life of the believer, even when we're still undiscipled, and we, we haven't figured it out, we haven't gotten the maturity that, that is coming as we grow, like you said, we get disturbed when the old life comes back up. The devil's going to attack us. He's going to remind us of all of our past things. going to try to drag us back down into that stuff. But that's not who we are. Before we have the Spirit, we're not convicted. We're not tormented and in turmoil. Unregenerate people don't wrestle with sin. Right. They might not like the results in their life, so they're looking for some kind of a change. But as you and I were talking about prior to the podcast, it, it looks more like trying to have a course correction than a repentance and a change of direction. It's a not, course correction based on, <clears throat> I don't like this. Yeah, you know? I, need to, I need to improve some things. Right. I need some self-help. I need to live need my to, best life now. I need to live my best <laughs> life now. So I don't like the results I have in this life. Right. My goal is not to please God. Right. In the Holy Spirit, my desire becomes to please God. I'm eager to live for Him. I might be failing at living for Him. Right. And I'm disturbed by the fact, not that my life isn't going the way I want it to go. That's not typical of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If I'm unhappy with the way my life is going, I'm still thinking according to the flesh, to my right. natural desires. But if I'm unhappy because I realize I am not living the life God's called me to live, I am not pleasing Him. Now, I, I want to be careful with the first statement I made. I'm not living the life God's called me to live. A lot of prosperity teachers will take that same phrasing and twist it, that the life God's called me to live is a life of, of health and wealth and prosperity. And because I don't have the right relationship or I don't have the right car or the right house or you know I'm dealing with these things, I'm not living the, guy, the life God's called me to live. That's hogwash. That is garbage, not biblical. In fact, we see Jesus say exactly the opposite. In this world, you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world constantly throughout the book of Acts, we're going to see bad things happen because they are living the life they've been called to live. 
The life is the the Christian life is often, not always, a call to poverty, to difficulty, to adversity. It's always going to be a call to some of those things at some times. It doesn't mean Christians are not ever to have wealth. That's that's not what we see in the biblical pattern. We don't see a command to that. What we do see is that wealth creates its own problems. That's very clear. <laughs> to quote Biggie, "Mo money, mo problems." The never, great theologian. The, the great theologian. Notorious B.I.G. Yeah, that. <clears throat> so um, there is no there is no Biggie Small Seminary, but there's reality in that. It, the when we have more stuff, then we have more problems to go along with that. When we're, so I don't even actually know the song. (laughs) um, So as we're, as we're looking at at how life works out, the life that God has called us to live is a life that looks like what we just read in, um, in Galatians five twenty three. So or five twenty two and twenty three. There is a there's a fruit that comes from the spirit, and when we're not walking according to the spirit because as he said after that let's keep in step with the spirit Mm -hmm. there's a choice involved if i'm not keeping in step with the spirit and the spirit is inside me then i'm going to have an inner turmoil Mm -hmm. because he's making fruit in me that looks like this but i'm walking in a way that looks like this and those two things that the oil and water just creates a, a very serious indigestion in us spiritually so we need the the apple cider vinegar if you will of discipline to be able to to make these choices to choose to reject certain thoughts and accept other thoughts to choose to get diligent about studying God's word not in fits and spurts and little pieces and let's find let's get a bible promise book and find a verse that relates to what i'm feeling right, right now uh, not that there's anything wrong per se with with Bible promise books, but it's limited. What it ends up doing is it it gives us this idea that the Bible is primarily a self-help book, and I've heard it promoted that way. It's not a self-help book. It is a God revelation book. God is revealing reality to us. This is how reality works. The one reality. There is one reality. It's the reality of God, and the Bible connects it to the realities of our everyday life. And the pictures that we have there are of flawed people walking through life and failing God and God reaching out to save us all the time. We've talked about that before. Some of the biggest characters, quote unquote, in the Bible are horribly flawed people. Absolutely. (laughs) And so the idea of us seeking God is a flawed concept to begin with. Right. And we see it over and over and over. He's not hiding for us to He's not. What happens in Genesis three? God is there. We're hiding hiding. from him. Right. He's seeking humanity um, and we're hiding. Like we can hide from right. God. So when God seeks us, he finds us. Right. That always happens. When Abraham is called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, where where he is from, God says, Abram, I want you to do this. Abram wasn't looking. He's in a in a, an area and a family that has all these, uh, these idols and so on. He's not, we don't really know much about what he's doing in his life, but he's not saying, God, please send me away. Right. God seeks him. Abram, I've called you. Do this. Go to a place. I'm not telling you where you're going. Just go. We read in Luke, Jesus came to seek and to save. That's right. So everything is about him doing the doing. He's doing the seeking. But there is a partnership, (coughs) excuse me, that he calls us to. Mm -hmm. The fruit of the Spirit is grown by the Spirit. And just think of what we're talking about. Fruit, the farmer doesn't, you know, force fruit to come out of the tree. It's what happens in the tree. 
The farmer does what he's doing, takes care of it. He's got the responsibility of tending it. But God makes the tree grow. God makes the fruit come from the tree. God makes the crops come from the ground. You have a role in that. But ultimately, I can plant an entire field and have it never grow because right. God gives the growth. Even if I do everything right, sometimes things don't go right. Mm-hmm. God gives the growth. The same thing happens in us. The fruit of the Spirit is God developing these things in us. But we still have a responsibility to keep in step with the Spirit, to walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. If, we're, if we are constantly choosing to walk according to the flesh even though that's not who we are, then our experience is not going to look like the fruit of the Spirit. That doesn't mean that the Spirit's not in us, but we are going to experience a great turmoil because as he's doing one thing in us and we're doing something contrary in our actions and our choices and our thoughts, then you're going to clash. And you need something to reconcile those things. And so what what reconciles our daily experience, our walk, with what God is doing in us is our choice, mm-hmm. yes, choice, to submit ourselves to him, to walk in obedience, to follow Christ, to actually do what the Spirit is calling us to do. How do we get rid of the turmoil? How do, how do we get rid of the peace? Stop trying to fix it. Don't Stop. get rid of the peace. Uh, yeah, to keep the peace. <laughs> Sorry. Keep the we peace. do get rid of the peace pretty yeah. regularly. Yeah, yeah. But by our own By choices. trying to right. do it ourselves. Right. So if we really want to undermine the Spirit's work in us, keep on trying to be religious. Keep on trying to get yourself help. Keep on trying to live your best life now and chase after those things. And boy, there's no better formula for wrecking your Christian experience. Because while you're trying to do good things, as we might see them, you're doing it according to your flesh. You're doing it in yourself rather than embracing what God is doing, aligning your thoughts with his truth so that your experience can align with his reality. I think uh, another notable thing from this passage is, um, I'm going to forget the number, 3,000 people Mm. came that were... were, It's a lot of people. It's a lot of people in one area. I think that's another going back to this practicality issue when you are when you are on that walk and your your life is lining up with the the holy spirit others see that even yeah. sometimes if you don't and, that's right yeah. and i think that as opposed to I won't say that. I don't want to say that, you know, I got to tell people about Jesus. That's obviously the most important thing. But I think sometimes, especially in today's culture, seeing it is is a big thing. Seeing that in somebody draws me to, to... Closer to that. Yeah, I don't know if I can say that that it's the most important thing to tell people about Jesus. I think it's two sides of the same coin. I, I think if we if we say the words, if we say the things, and we say it perfectly. We give Peter's sermon. And a lot of people do say it perfectly. But they don't see right. this change in our lives. Then the words have an empty ring to them. And, I, and I, if they see a change in our lives and they don't hear the truth of the gospel in words spoken very, very clearly and and um, not necessarily perfectly, but very directly, if they don't have the words to go along with the actions, then they praise us as, well, look what a good person Stacy right. is. Look, she doesn't do this and she doesn't do that. And, you know, there's something really good about her. And then we receive the praise. 
but it's not about us. Well, I think that kind of ties back to what I said at the beginning here as to why people might say, well, you know, I have my own relationship with God, but I don't really, I'm not really crazy about the church because I think we've been burned <coughs> so many times by people who say one, who right. pr- profess to be Christians and say one thing and act a different way or vice versa. Right. And so I think that gets to somebody who, who is either not a Christ follower or, or is, but doesn't, doesn't, is not sure. fully mature, not maturing. I think that can becomes very confusing and frustrating and hard to really fully grasp. Right. Well, and and there there are a lot of facets to that. One is that not everybody who wears the jersey is on the team. Sure. So there are a lot of people who represent Christ poorly who aren't actually representing Christ. They're they might be talking about it, but that's not. They don't work for the company. They're not part of the family. They're not on the team. So that can be misleading at times. The other part of it is that we don't really do that in other circles. We don't, because somebody is driving a Ford and they're a bad driver, we don't decide we're never going to drive Fords again. You know, that, you know. <laughs> no, yeah. so, you know, you're a Notre Dame fan, right? You know, having gone to, uh, to St. Mary's and spent a lot of time there. Have you ever met any obnoxious Notre Dame fans that you don't want to be around? Most. (laughs) But that doesn't keep you from associating with Notre Dame or Notre Dame fans or or, or whatever else. Uh, You know, as a a sports fan in general, there are lots of people that are really embarrassing to me. Mm -hmm. You know, as a football coach, there are a lot of bad football coaches. And it just yanks my chain because I cannot stand my beautiful and glorious sport being defiled by this. But I don't stop loving football or trying to do this right because somebody else is doing it wrong. So why do we let that happen in our spiritual experience? Well, obviously because the devil is working really hard at that. Um, And our our sin nature is bent toward that. We're bent away from God. So when God calls us to be part of his family in the church and we say yeah i want to be related but i don't really want to be part of the family Mm -hmm. that breaks god's heart that is the opposite of what he wants he has always from the beginning dealt with his people both individually and collectively and and you don't have it you don't have any examples throughout the scripture of the lone ranger type christian where we're just going to go do our thing there's always starting in the family unit and then you know in the old testament there's israel this is the people of god and god dealt with them as a people and it was the worst thing in the world to be cut off from your people same thing in the church the church is god's people and it's a privilege to be a part of this family and it's a joy to be a part of this family so much so that when we are unrepentant about our sin in the church, we're called in the New Testament to put people out of the church. In other words, being cut off from your people, being cut off from the church, is the worst punishment you can have as a disciplinary action with the goal of, number one, purifying the church so that God's holiness is seen, and number two, restoring people because not being a part of the church is a terrible, hurtful, bad thing for those who are actually believers. So when it gets to that point, if you're actually a Christ follower, if that hasn't moved you to repentance by now, I mean, if, you, if just if being called out hasn't gotten you to repentance, the idea that you are being cut off from the family right, does right. move you to repentance. And if not, there's a reason that, that we're told treat them like an unbeliever. Because in all likelihood, that's what they are. If we're not willing to repent, even at the expense of being part of the family, that's a huge, huge thing. So 
it, it is absolutely antithetical for Christians to not be in love with the church. That does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that every relationship is perfect and there are no flaws and every church is perfect. If there are human beings, it is flawed. That's how it works. That doesn't keep us from dating and marriage, right? There is no relationship where you don't have conflict. Mm -hmm. If you don't have conflict, then you're in a relationship with an android that you can program, not with a person. So if we have people... That might happen. <laughs> in Japan, I think it's prominent. But, you know, in, in if you're looking at actual relationships with people in any setting, at any time, you're going to have conflict. That doesn't mean you bail on it. But conflict also causes you to grow and become Absolutely. stronger. That's right. Together and individually. Well, that's right. And and there are advantages of having siblings, right? You fight with your siblings, you go through, the, but it also causes you to grow in ways that if you don't have siblings, you're not forced to grow. Mm -hmm. And I think just basic human experience teaches us pretty clearly that if we're not forced to grow, we generally don't. Right. Maturity comes through adversity. No adversity, no maturity. More adversity, more maturity. That's just how it works. I was watching uh, some, it was some fitness commercial or something the other day, and, and the guy on it said, he goes, your body naturally wants, or your body naturally wants to fight getting up and moving. It's right. you you want but, to sit there yeah. and do nothing. You have to choose to get up. Inertia is a move. universal principle. So that that's uh the mind and body are apparently absolutely one right. with that. Yeah. So we'll stop there because we're over time. Of but course we are. Would you expect anything? Rob else? Nash isn't here to keep us on track. That's true. Thank you, Rob. <laughs> He's also probably not listening. It's so probably true Rob, well. if you hear this, text me so I know you're listening. Ooh, you're on the you're yeah. on the spot now. Thank you for listening everyone.